This is your Scoggins, the international law podcast from Leiden. My name is Omar Akif. On the show, we discuss the latest developments, concepts, and judgments from the world of international law with leading scholars and practitioners. For the first episode of the Yuskogans podcast, I have a very special guest and a true giant of international law, Dr. Niels Blocker, who is the professor of international institutional law holding the Schermer's chair at the Grosje Center for International Legal Studies at Leiden University. He has previously worked with the Netherlands Ministry of Foreign Affairs as a senior legal counsel and advisor, and he has extensively published on the proliferation of international organizations, the Security Council and the use of force, and more importantly, on international institutional law about which we'll be discussing with him today on the show. Professor Blocker is also the co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of the journal International Organizations Law Review, and on a more personal level, he taught me the course Law and Practice of International Organizations at the Leiden Law School earlier this year. Thank you so much, Professor Blocker, for being on the show today and for taking our time for this interview. As discussed with you earlier, we'll be talking about two things. Firstly, INJUGOVINS, uh, an acronym a term coined by Professor Blocker himself, which means International Judicial Governance Institutions. And secondly, we'll be talking about the upcoming edition of uh, your new book, International Institutional Law, the sixth edition, which is uh, which I presume is coming out later this year. Uh, so without any further ado, I'll hand it over to Professor Blocker, uh, who will give us an overview of what Injugovans is. So um, it's a pleasure for me here now to, to explain a bit more about this research project. And I'm, I feel happy that I now have more time to, uh, to, to go into this together with my uh, excellent young colleague, Dr. Sergei Vasilyev. And this project uh, relates to a, a, a relatively recent phenomenon that we see in international law and also in international relations, which is the increasing number of international courts and tribunals. Um, briefly, if you look at numbers only, uh, we know that around 1990, we had only six international courts and tribunals, including, of course, the International Court of Justice, uh, the European courts in Luxembourg and Strasbourg, uh, and a few others. But that was it. Since the 1990s, we see the rise of, of a number of new international courts and tribunals in specific areas, such as the Law of the Sea. We have ITLOS, the Law of the Sea Tribunal in Hamburg. We have the appellate body at the WTO, the World Trade Organization in Geneva, and we have a number of regional courts and tribunals in Africa and other parts of the world. So this is a very interesting, very important new development in international law and also in international relations. Um, in research and academic research so far, almost all attention uh, has been into the functioning, and the rules, the practices, the decisions of these international courts and tribunals. So our idea for this research project is that now we should really, and I'm not criticizing this emphasis on the courts and tribunals themselves, but the idea is now in this research project to focus on another type of institution that is of fundamental importance for the proper functioning of these courts and tribunals. And those are the international judicial governance institutions, such as, for example, the Assembly of State Parties for the ICC, such as, for example, the General Assembly and the Security Council of the United Nations, which are the governance institutions of the International Court of Justice. They elect the judges of these courts and tribunals. They adopt the budgets of these courts and tribunals. They take other important governance decisions. So they provide these courts and tribunals with a proper governance structure, without which they can have a function. And 
<clears throat> a bit to my surprise, hardly any research has been done in this field. And our idea is to fill this gap in our research project. <clears throat> so we very much hope uh, the next couple of years to have enough time and money to do research, to be in touch with those who work in practice in courts and tribunals and in these international judicial governance institutions, which we uh, abbreviate to uh, Injugovins, as you properly pronounced, um, Injugovins, and we uh, we try to build up um, uh, knowledge in this field to publish the results of our research and to organize, hopefully, seminars and conferences in this field. So it's good to, uh, just to mention one additional thing um, against this background uh, to, to finish my the first point I would like to make. So uh, I, I just essentially mentioned that this is a very, very important new development. And this has indeed been studied from the perspective of international law in academia. Many colleagues um, have written books, articles in this field, studying either um, um, uh, judgments and decisions of international courts and tribunals in general, or commented on specific um, judgments of international courts and tribunals. Um, the main um, uh, question I would have now is, um, while we have studied extensively so far these new international courts and tribunals and their um, judgments, we have not yet studied um, another type of institution. Uh, and uh, I'm referring to uh, gov these governance institutions of these courts and tribunals. Uh, we have not yet studied these institutions, and that is, um, that is certainly something we would, like to, uh, we would like to do with our project. The functioning of these institutions is of fundamental importance for the proper functioning of these international courts and tribunals, because these international courts and tribunals do not, unlike national courts and tribunals, function in a sort of centralized um, legal order. International, the international legal order is structured in a fundamentally different way. So you have um, um, an international court and tribunal or tribunal functioning rather in isolation. Uh, and it needs, of course, a certain context. Uh, it needs a governance context within which the judges can be elected or appointed, in which a budget can be adopted. Um, that is uh, obviously necessary for these courts and tribunals to function. And it's precisely these institutions that take these type of decisions, these governance decisions, um, these type of institutions are fundamental importance for the proper functioning of the, all these international courts and tribunals. So this is where I should stop for the moment, I think. Thank you, Professor Blocker, for that uh, detailed introduction. Um, as you mentioned that these uh, governance uh, institutions structures are of fundamental importance to the functioning of the international courts and tribunals. What do you think has been the primary reason why research in these fields has been so limited so far, almost non-existent? And after the emergence of more regional tribunals, as you mentioned in the 90s, uh, before that there were just one or two. Uh, and then, do you think that the academic, uh, the academics have failed to keep up with the emergence of these uh, new tribunals, and they have not researched uh, fundamentally in, into the governance structures behind them? What's the main reason? Well, that is precisely one of the questions we are dealing with. But at this moment, uh, my impression is that it's, of course. It's fully understandable that, first of all, in particular, um, my colleagues, uh, um, uh, my colleague international lawyers, colleagues, 
that they study, first of all, these international courts and tribunals themselves from a legal perspective, uh, but also from a broader international relations perspective. I think the functioning of these courts and tribunals is, uh, first of all, key, and it's a really new development. So it's perhaps um, quite obvious to expect that the first uh, analysis, the first books, the first articles, they deal with the functioning of these courts and tribunals themselves. Um, and to a certain extent, when I first started to think about this topic of governance of international courts and tribunals, and this was a couple of years ago, uh, my last few years working also at the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs, where I became familiar with the functioning of the Assembly of State Parties um, of the International Criminal Court, um, when I first had this idea, we need to pay more attention to these governance institutions, my expectation was, as normally happens, if you have an idea in academia, you find out the next day or the next week or the next month that quite a lot has been written about this already and people have studied it. But um, um, a bit unexpectedly, perhaps, I found out step by step that this was not the case. Hardly any studies have been conducted in this field. And while there is, of course, a, a considerable amount of expertise, this is expertise mainly existing in the political world amongst diplomats, because these are the people sitting in these governance institutions, such as the Assembly of State Parties, but also, uh, for example, the General Assembly of, uh, or the Security Council of the United Nations, because these are the bodies that elect the judges of the International Court of Justice. The General Assembly is adopting the budget of the International Court of Justice, included in the budget of the United Nations, of course. So the, the idea was, first of all, um, it's perhaps natural that the first, um, uh, the first studies really were into the courts and tribunals themselves, and only later, um, a bit unexpectedly perhaps for me, um, it's, it became clear that hardly any studies have been carried out into the work, the functioning of these governance institutions, which I would like to name in Jugovins, as you correctly pronounced in the beginning, which is, let me immediately add, uh, a terrible name, an ugly uh, acronym. And this field is full of acronyms. So I just add another one in Jugovin, which is simply an abbreviation for International Judicial Governance Institution. But I think it's helpful to use this name uh, to refer to all these governance institutions that all these new international courts and tribunals have. Taking your answer forward, uh, when you talk about that realization, when you had that not much research has been done in this field, uh, when you wrote that appeal for research more in this field, and for our listeners, I'd like to mention that Professor Blocker wrote a paper in the European Society of International Law Conference Series, which is titled The Governance of International Courts and Tribunals, Organizing and Guaranteeing Independence and Accountability. Uh, in in that paper, uh, you mentioned that Andrew Bowen's uh, deal and have dealt with issues that directly affect the functioning and independence of courts and tribunals. Uh, and in that particular paper, you talk about the uh, case of SADC tribunal, uh, in which the summits of heads of state and government reviewed the role of SADC after Zimbabwe had led a campaign to restrict and review the role of the body after it had ruled against Zimbabwe's land allocation legislation, which uh, discriminated against white farmers uh, in land allocation. Do you really think that you can separate state interests, uh, states from subjecting the self-interest in the functioning of Hindu governments? Um, yes, um, I think this is not only what I think, it is also what the states themselves think. Because in creating these international courts and tribunals, 
they all wish to create an independent court and tribunal. There is no doubt about it. Because if you look at their intentions when creating these courts and tribunals, if you look at their statutes, their constituent instruments, you will always see references to the independence of these courts and tribunals. That's in the self-interest of states, because these states that work together in the creation of organizations and tribunals and courts, um, they certainly want these courts and tribunals to be independent and not to be simply listening to other member states, of course. So they really need to, to function in an independent way, as, of course, national courts uh, do. So um, um, that is at least the idea at the creation of such a court and tribunal. However, uh, uh, however, in practice, uh, we have seen, unfortunately, cases, and uh, the worst example, perhaps, is indeed this case of the tribunal of the Southern African Development Community, um, this, this early case of this tribunal in which it ruled against Zimbabwe, uh, and in which it was, became not only clear that Zimbabwe was not willing to implement that ruling, but even more, and that is quite exceptional, fortunately quite exceptional, that Zimbabwe started to um, to bring this new tribunal to an end, basically. It could not do so by itself. It had to convince the other member states of this regional organization, 14 other member states, um, that this tribunal was becoming, to put it that way, too independent, so to say. Um, and apparently these other member states were willing to agree with Zimbabwe. And now what you see is there are... Um, there is this idea to change the jurisdiction of this SADC tribunal and to really restrict it to, to deal only with interstate disputes. So no longer to have the possibility to individuals to go directly to this, to this tribunal. So this is quite an exceptional case, I would like to stress. And of course, this is inherent in, um, in this, uh, this very important new development that we see, in which we see also lots of success stories. Um, uh, in the functioning of these courts and tribunals, in which we also see that many states do accept normally these judgments of international courts and tribunals. Um, but in some cases, like in this one in particular, you can see that they find it difficult to, to accept it. It's a long-term process, and these long-term processes, um, Rome has not been built in a day. Yes. Uh, so it takes time. And uh, it's not only success stories. Uh, sometimes you see that it's for states it takes time to accept the functioning of these independent courts and tribunals and also the implications of their sovereign decisions to create an independent court or tribunal. In the article, you also mentioned that NGO governments are more than a sum of their members. They're not just, uh, you know, uh, just member states opposing their ideas. Uh, and there's another case which you mentioned in the article regarding the uh, presence of Kenyan leaders in front of the ICC especially when, when they got elected. Uh, even in that, do you think that political realities in some way shape how uh, the functioning of these NGO governments and their uh, subsequent tribunals and courts uh, function? Uh, because uh, even, even in that, when the Appeals Chamber decided in uh, October 2013 that Article 63.1 of the Rome Statute does not act as a bar to the continuation of proceedings uh, in which the pre presence of uh, the leaders were ne was necessary in front of the court. Uh, although th that draft resolution was not adopted, but that led to amendments in the rules and uh, uh, rules of procedures and evidence. Uh, what does that say about the robustness of international institutional law as a whole? And is it in some way affected by political realities? 
I must say you ask excellent questions. This is a fundamental question. And I only have the beginning of answers to this. It's precisely why we have this research project. But indeed, the assumption is that the fact that the states do not individually um, govern these international courts and tribunals, but, um, but perform their governance functions in regard to these international courts and tribunals within the context of institutions. Uh, so uh, organs, something organic, which is more indeed, as you say, than some of the members of these organs. And that is a fundamental starting point. And how this operates in practice, it is very difficult to, 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 to prove, of course, because there is no alternative history. We cannot do the Kenya case uh, in, the, in the Assembly of State Parties without the functioning of the Assembly of State Parties, so to say. So we never completely know. But if you look at this particular example that you mentioned, you can really see how this has functioned in practice. You could see the initial reaction of a couple of states, in particular African states, which did not want that their leaders would be prosecuted in front of the International Criminal Court. Um, and who might have forgotten a little bit about some of the provisions of the ICC statute to which they are parties. Uh, which one of these provisions saying in Article 27, it's about the irrelevance of official capacity. So basically they accepted. It's again like the Sadek Tribunal case where they accepted something and then a couple of years later they are confronted with the implications of something that they have accepted. And then it's very interesting to see what happened um, in those weeks where this was discussed not only in the Assembly of State Parties but also two weeks before in the Security Council. Um, how um, these strong feelings, uh, particularly with African states, about this particular case against Kenyatta and Ruto before the ICC, how to deal with this. And then um, you could very well see that, first of all, it was decided finally in the Security Council not to adopt this deferral decision, uh, but to leave it, and it was about half of the members of the Security Council having a preference for uh, the Assembly of State Parties, to deal with it more in the context of the, the Assembly of State Parties within the context of the ICC, so to say. And then to see, uh, in, it was the most difficult issue, really a hot issue, dealt with the Assembly of State Parties that November month, uh, I remember vividly. And um, at the end of the day, there was this compromise solution, the amendment of the rules of procedure and evidence, I'm sure quite controversial from a legal point of view. So there is discussion whether or not this is a violation of the statute. It would introduce things like um, um, uh, e-conferences by which um, uh, the, the, the hearings against Ruto and uh, Kenyatta could continue. So without their physical presence in The Hague, some would say this is against the rules of the statute. But at the end of the day, in the interpretation of... Um, the individual members, but what is more, uh, the sum of these members working together uh, organically within the context of this Assembly of State Parties, uh, uh, together agreeing on this interpretation of the statute that it would be acceptable to do it in this way. So in my view, this is perhaps, but again, we are at the beginning of this research project, this is perhaps uh, an example of um, well, I would, uh, would hesitate to say the successful functioning of an Indubovin, but at least a decision was taken that is not without controversies, uh, but at the same time, uh, a way out was found in this very difficult, um, on this very difficult issue. All right, great. Before we move on to the next part, uh, which is uh, regarding the 
fifth edition of your new book, International Institution Law. Uh, you earlier mentioned uh, that Indu Govins can learn something from national courts uh, and, and how they're working. Uh, do you think as far as the independence of international courts and tribunals are concerned, is there still some concerns regarding how independent they really are? Uh, because there has been some emphasis in the past on keeping the judges themselves independent, but there's not been a lot of work being done to make sure that the or the tribunals themselves or the organizations themselves uh, reflect an independent uh, position. How, 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 how do you think uh, we can move uh, what's the future of the research? What's the future of Indubovans? Where do we go from here? Um, I'm not sure whether I fully understand your question, but uh, I'm sure it is about the independence of these international courts and tribunals and to what extent the functioning of Indubovans can guarantee um, um, as much as possible the independence of these courts and tribunals and their individual okay. judges. Um, well, uh, this is certainly, th this project um, will show certainly uh, from a comparative perspective, comparing the functioning, the rules and the practice of the functioning of these in Jugovins, um learning lessons from individual cases. Just to mention one example, you see that in some in Jugovins, in the procedure for electing judges, there is um, a, a selection committee or a nomination, nomination committee. Um, this is well known in certain contexts, such as the ICC, but also in the context of the Lebanon Tribunal, the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, um, that there are certain additional guarantees um, uh, in the procedure for electing these judges. But this these additional guarantees do not exist in all in Jugovins. For example, in uh, in SPLOS, I'm sure this acronym is not familiar to most of those who listen, um, but SPLOS is the meeting of state parties for the um, to the Law of the Sea Convention. So it is the Jugovin uh, for ITLOS, the Law of the Sea Tribunal. Uh, SPLOS is the body, it just met last week in June, it, uh, every year it meets in June to elect judges, to adopt the budget, etc., um, and um, in the procedure in SPLOS, in electing judges, there is not such an additional guarantee, such a nomination committee or, or selection committee, in which there are additional tests, um, checks to see whether indeed, um, what are the qualifications of the candidates to become judges, in order to make sure that uh, there, is, uh, there is a full picture of the qualifications of all the candidates to become judges, and that at the end of the day, the Indukovins, which make the final choices about the future judges, that they make the best possible choice. Uh, and finally, it's been three years since you made that appeal for research. That was back in 2015. Uh, what progress do you think has been made uh, on Indukovins in the last three years, if any? And where do you see it evolving or growing from uh, this point onwards? I don't know. I don't know what it is, but um, I am convinced, uh, and this has been confirmed in the talks I've given so far on a number of occasions for academic audiences, but also to international courts and tribunals, staff members, um, where I spoke about this, this new idea and this research project, but also to um, uh, networks of diplomats who are active in these Indukovins. So there it has always strongly been confirmed that this is a good idea, that it is a, a very important new research project. So I feel confident 
because of the support given in practice, both in courts and tribunals, and also in the context of these in Jukovins and the diplomats uh, that work in these in Jukovins, that it is necessary really to 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 build up knowledge in this field uh, uh, dealing with the functioning of these in Jukovins. So that's all I can say at this moment. What we will now try to do, my colleague Sergei Vasilyev and I, is to um, to find the time and find the money to do research, to publish, um, and to organize seminars or conferences, and to have meetings with experts in the field um, to try to build up knowledge in this field and to publish about it and to uh, to try to 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 improve the functioning of in Jugovins and indirectly also the functioning of these new international courts and tribunals. Great, so that wraps the first part of the discussion on Injugovans. Uh, now we'll be moving on to the second part of the show on international institutional law, the sixth edition of the book which Professor Blocker has co-authored. A preface of that book was shared uh, with us uh, during the course Law and Practice of International Organizations, although I'm not sure whether I'm at the liberty of discussing the contents of that chapter uh, yet. Uh, but I'll leave it to the man himself, Professor Blocker, to give an overview of the new edition of the book and what's it's, what, what is it all about. Uh, and I would also like you to discuss how recent legal developments such as the U.S. withdrawing from the Human Rights Council and countries like Burundi withdrawing from the Rome Statute affect work being done in international institutional law such as your book and other uh, research. Thank you very much. This is a very, very big question, and I would need uh, probably a full lecture, which is twice 45 minutes here in Leiden to, to, to give a proper answer to this. But let me try to do it within a few minutes. Uh, and there is a direct link to the issues we have discussed now before the governance of international courts and tribunals, because in my view, this field of law, the law of international organizations and international institution law, uh, has something to contribute to the study of the the, the governance of of Yugovins, the governance of international courts and tribunals, because um, the law of international organizations is dealing with topics like the legal status, privileges, and immunities of international courts and tribunals, and in Yugovins, uh, as we discussed already, the organic nature of these institutions, organs of international organizations, the way in which they take decisions. Consensus decision making being very important these days, um, the finances of international courts and tribunals. So all these issues are quite familiar, uh, and there is a lot of research that is has been done in this field within the context of international institutional law that is directly relevant for this new research project that we are doing. Now, so there is a direct link um, between all the things that we have discussed before and your earlier questions and this this other question now about a new edition of this book. Um, which is indeed now, uh, the manuscript is out of my hands, it's now with the publisher, and it was a pleasure for me to share with my students uh, a couple of months ago, uh, the, the at least the preface, the few pages of preface, so to give you an impression, uh, sort of preview uh, of what will be in the new edition. And indeed, these are difficult times. These are difficult times as far as multilateralism is concerned. You see this every day, there is the, right, the rise of nationalism, populism in many states, uh, anti-globalization, anti-international organizations, also in a number of fields. You see this at the global level. We also see this at the European level. 
but um, it's more, much more complex than that. It is not as simple as um, we are moving downwards. It's all, uh, so this is the direction in which we only will go the next, uh, the next couple of years or longer, perhaps. So it's more complex, I would say. It's much more complex in the sense that uh, perhaps paradoxically, this might to some extent be the implication of the success of the functioning of international organizations and globalization also uh, at large. Because of this success, because of this increasing globalization that was of course to a great extent facilitated by the functioning of international organizations, you see the impact this has on national societies um, and perhaps not affecting in the same way all parts of the population. Um, so um, causing to a certain degree opposition, resistance uh, against uh, globalization, internationalization, etc., um, causing tensions in national societies. Um, and therefore, th th there is a need to find a proper balance. There is a need also to, um, uh, to, 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 to make sure that the benefits of globalization are not only go to a uh, small elite, but go to larger parts in the world, larger parts of the population. Um, uh, so this is a long-term, very much a long-term process. And we are now in a few years in which you see backlashes, in which you see withdrawals of international organizations. And this is full in, uh, full, fully front-page news, I would say. Um, all the journalists, the public has full attention for withdrawals from international organizations. But at the same time, if you look at the facts, and as Gunnar Mirdal once said, facts kick. And that's really true. If you look at the facts, you will see nowadays many more uh, accessions to international organizations than you see withdrawals. But it's hardly front page news that countries accede to um, international organizations. So it's much more complex, I would say. And uh, in the long run, it's, it's ups and downs. But in general, I see that there is this move forward to, 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 um, to moving to the direction of a world in which we are closer to each other and in which we have no alternative option but to work together and to do the things that are in our common interest. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that there's a rise of populism and right-wing sentiments across the world. Uh, but does that also mean that international organizations are also going to work how they used to in the past? Uh, because during the course you also mentioned that after the Second World War, whenever an international problem arose, uh, an international organization was created to address that particular issue. But that hasn't been the case uh, for the last 20 years after the end of the Cold War. Maybe too many organizations already exist and we don't need more organizations. Or do you think that international law or international institutional law in specific has reached a static point where it's, it has stopped? Uh, evolving. I'm convinced that the word static um, is not um, is not uh, the appropriate word to describe what will be going on the next couple of years uh, in international organizations. It's going to be extremely dynamic. Uh, the, I feel safe to, to, to say that uh, there will be lots of changes uh, inside international organizations as well, because international organizations also need to change to this changing environment in which they need to perform their functions. There's demands now in the outside world that they perform better in certain ways. There are sometimes there is fair criticism at the functioning of international organizations, uh, but not always is this criticism fair. And it's always in these discussions extremely important to, to distinguish between the organizations and their member states. 
Sometimes the criticism should rather be directed at the member states rather than at the organizations themselves. You cannot blame the United Nations for not reforming the Security Council of the United Nations. You can blame the member states for not being able to come to an agreement to, to reform the Security Council. There are many more examples I could give. But also, to some extent, it's necessary whenever things go wrong, and sometimes things go wrong within international organizations, to address those situations and to improve the situations. Um, and um, uh, we need, uh, at the same time also, uh, as you rightly mentioned, uh, the situation nowadays is completely different from the situation at the end of the Second World War. We now have hundreds of international organizations. So in many fields, we do not need any new international organizations. However, if you look back at the last 10, 15 years, you see that every now and then there might be a need not only to cooperate for uh, governments for, of a number of states, but also to do so within a permanent um, framework and creating a new international organization. We, in our course, we have discussed some of these examples. The best example I always find is International Commission on Missing Persons. And there are completely valid good reasons to create this new organization or rather to transform this 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 um, this uh, this framework for cooperation that already existed for quite some time um, to transform it into a fully fledged international organization it was not easy to do so because the climate nowadays is against the creation of new international organizations but finally for very good reasons, a number of governments were willing to do this. And now, again, uh, this, um, this organization is really able to, to perform its functions. So you mentioned that states have to, member states have to take greater responsibility uh, you know, for the effective functioning of these international organizations. Uh, but, but do you feel that, uh, going back to the discussion on NGO governments, that to maintain the independence of uh, these uh, courts and tribunals, for example, if the budget of the ICJ is being approved by the General Assembly, uh, in which the majority of the member states, you know, have a role to play, and how how that plays, so how how do you think we can balance the majority rule of the member states uh, in a democratic forum like the General Assembly, and also maintaining the independence of institutions like the ICJ? I'm sorry, I'm going back to the earlier discussion, no, no, no. but I just uh, no. got that from you. Yeah. 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 Uh, the, 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 this is very important, I feel. From what I've seen so far, and again, let me stress, we are at the beginning of our research project, but um, the dialogue between these new international courts and also the old international courts and tribunals uh, on the one hand and their Indugovins on the other hand is of fundamental importance. And that is precisely something that is a problem nowadays. Uh, in my article that you have mentioned um, uh, for the European Society, um, I discussed some of the cases, some of the more difficult cases, and from that it is clear that this dialogue, um, uh, uh, that could be really improved. Uh, this dialogue, uh, in this dialogue, what you see nowadays is very much that quite often, and I hear this also from those who work in practice, from the people who work at the courts, and also from the diplomats who work in, in Yugovins, you hear the criticism in uh, courts and tribunals that they say these Indugovins, these diplomats, they um, they get far too much into our business, into our, into our judicial business. Um, so uh, while this is prohibited because we are independent, we are supposed to be independent, they want us to be independent. So they should not interfere in our judicial work. 
so the criticism is they are micromanaging, they are determining whether or not we should have two or three courtrooms, etc., etc. And this is basically for us to decide how we can best perform, how we can best do our judicial business. The criticism on the other side, uh, if I talk to diplomats, they always tell me whenever we have discussions with these courts and tribunals, they immediately um, put on the table their independence. As, uh, and that should almost be the end of the discussion. So it makes it very difficult to have an open dialogue in which there is uh, an understanding of each other's position, in which these courts and tribunals, of course, need to understand that if governments during a certain amount of years face a financial crisis, that it is very difficult at home to explain that you can um, you can spend less money on health, on agriculture, or on other issues, social issues, etc., uh, but then for some reason you need to spend more money on international courts and tribunals. That is difficult to explain, of course. So that is something I feel that international courts and tribunals should be able to understand better. On the other hand, also uh, these diplomats and these in Jugovins should better understand what is necessary for the proper functioning of courts and tribunals. It is not fair to say, as I have seen in practice, at the start of a new court or tribunal, the ICC, there was immediately the claim by some countries, by some uh, diplomats and politicians, this uh, principle of zero tolerance of a budget. How can you um, advocate this principle, the application of this principle of zero growth of a budget, if a new court is just starting? And if cases come in, and if you ask at the same time this court to perform and to deal with these cases without giving it the money it needs to, to perform. So uh, what I've seen so far in practice, and again, let me stress, we are at the beginning of this research project from what I've seen, is there is really a need of better mechanisms for interaction between these international courts and tribunals on the one hand and their injugovins on the other hand. And it's helpful to learn from practice, of course, how you can improve this. One idea is, of course, to make sure that these injugovins, and very often you see these are sometimes younger diplomats who are involved, Whereas on the other side, you see senior judges uh, representing courts and tribunals. Um, it is necessary, perhaps, as you have sometimes in the national context, that you have advisory committees composed of also people who have expertise in the functioning of courts and tribunals, that they can give the best possible advice to these injugovins that they can take their proper decisions. But it's a two-way street, I should say. There is a need for a better understanding quite often. Uh, both on the side of the uh, uh, courts and tribunals themselves, on the other hand, also on the side of these Yugovins. Thank you, Professor Blocker, for being patient with my questions. I won't hold you much longer. And perhaps you can end with uh, sharing a bit about your current research or what you're working on. And perhaps you can also end with your favorite uh, Bob Dylan quote. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, what I'm trying to to finalize now <clears throat> is a case study. Actually, it's a case study about um, the only case I've seen so far uh, in this research project that seemed to be quite a success story, and that is the case of Itlos and Splos. So it was quite a surprise for me. This was the first um, case where I met people working in practice for for Itlos, working for Splos, <clears throat> where I could see that there has not been there has not yet been there has not been a major crisis in the functioning uh, in the relationship between SPLOS and ITLOS. Of course, 
There have been small discussions, and but always it has been able to overcome difference of opinion and difficulties at times. Uh, so uh, I think this is one of the cases where it has worked quite well. And of course, the next question is um, to find explanations why this has happened in this specific context and not so much in other contexts. But this is something we will try to do in our research project. And then you ask me about uh, this Nobel Prize winner, Bob Dylan. Of course, I like to quote him. And it's very good to see that my young students in class there, most of them are in their 20s, that they still know what Bob Dylan was, is and was. Um, the times, they are changing. That is indeed what he, what his famous song is about. And that is what we certainly see nowadays. And it's fascinating, of course, to be part of this. It's fascinating to do research in this field. Uh, with my new research project and it's fascinating likewise uh, to teach in this field uh, as i mentioned to you it's um, such a privilege to now teach uh, in a class with uh, between 100 and 200 students um, 75 percent of them coming from more than 40 different countries um, we have only 50 students coming from the netherlands so it's really an international audience that I have. And it's completely different, as I mentioned always to the students, than how the classroom looked like when I started. Only filled with Dutch students. So right. it's it's really much better now. And I see in the faces of the international students and also the Dutch students, how much they, most of the time, of course, uh, seem to enjoy uh, being uh, together and also building up their future networks in the field of international law. So that was Professor Niels Blocker with his great insights and analysis on Inju Corbins and his new book. That's all we have for today on the Use Corbins podcast. Till the next episode, take care.